please turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 11. Last week we read of Jesus raising a man named Lazarus from death. Lazarus died from an illness and was then buried in a tomb for four days. His body even began decaying. And with one command, Jesus gave Lazarus' corpse life and called him out of the tomb. And by doing this, he proved that he, really was, that he really is the resurrection and the life. He proved that he has power over death. And he proved that he has life in himself and is able to give it to whomever he pleases. I don't know how you responded to that message last week, but we get a picture of how the Jews respond to it today in our text. You'd think that raising a man from death right in front of everybody would, would, would lead everybody to believe. But that's just not the case that we find. We find some of them believe, but a bunch of them get ticked off. So where are you this morning, right? That's what John wants us to consider here. Are you believing that Jesus is your only hope for life? Or are you still sitting in your unbelief and in your skepticism? and in your suspicion of Jesus. Regardless of where you are, I hope my prayer is that these words here that we cover this morning will give all of you faith. That faith in Jesus will grow deeper for those of you who already belong to Him. And that faith in Jesus will be created for those of you who are yet to be Jesus' disciples. We know that that's God's agenda because In chapter 20, verse 30 and 31 of this gospel, it says that these things were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. So let's read God's Word. Verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what He did, believed in Him But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Father in heaven, I pray that you would come and give us insight into your word, that you would humble our hearts before you so that they are open to receive that word, and that your Holy Spirit would cause this word to come with power and full conviction, and in the Holy Spirit. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There are only four observations that I want to make today, and all of them 
describe Jesus' death. One of the most striking things about John 11 is that after Jesus raises Lazarus from death, you hear almost nothing more about Lazarus. We get a few more comments in chapter 12 that reiterate how big an impression Jesus made among the people by raising Lazarus, whether that impression was good or bad. But outside that, you hear nothing more about Lazarus. You hear nothing more about what he thought about the whole thing. You hear nothing more about what it was like to experience death and then be raised to life again. You hear nothing about what he saw as his soul left his body. Once he walks out of the tomb, John is basically done with Lazarus. Now that certainly tells us something about what his gospel is about, does it not? It's about revealing Jesus and not the experiences of Lazarus. But I think John wants us to see something even more specific than that because he not only lets Lazarus fade into the background, he doesn't even focus for very long on the people who believed in Jesus. What do they get? Half a verse? John leaps over Lazarus, leaps over the apparent success the miracle had among many of the Jews, and he throws us straight into the evil plots of the unbelieving Jews and their religious leaders scheming to put Jesus to death. I mean, come on, John, let's let's camp out a little longer on the happy occasion of Jesus raising this man from death. Jesus calls a dead man out of the tomb, and now we're with these Pharisee creeps again who want him dead because of the whole thing. There's a reason for this. And it's a reason that belongs not merely to John, the apostle, but to the Holy Spirit himself who inspired John to write these words as they are written. The divine reason we're plunged into the schemes of evil men to kill Jesus immediately after Jesus has given life to a dead man is to teach us something crucial. It's to teach us this. The life Jesus gives to sinners plagued with death doesn't come apart from his own death. The life Jesus gives to sinners plagued with death doesn't come apart from his own death. Jesus gives life to sinners by entering death himself. The evil schemes of the religious leaders are serving a much bigger purpose in God's plan to bring us eternal life through Jesus. And God wants us to make this connection. The one who gives life to the dead is the one who goes to the cross. John is bringing those things together. The Holy Spirit is bringing those things together for us here. That's why I'm focusing on Jesus' death this morning. Because if you marvel at Jesus' power and you miss Jesus' passion, you will not be saved. As Christians, we cannot be thrilled with Jesus' miracles and miss His mission. They go together, and in fact, the miracles only help us to savor His mission all the more. And His power only helps us understand His passion. The one who has authority over death, enter death, 
for my life and for your life. So four observations about the death of Jesus. Here they are. Number one, Jesus' death is the result of the Jews' unbelief and pride. Jesus' death is the result of the Jews' unbelief and pride. Verse 46. Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Essentially, they snitched on him. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. This council is also known as the Sanhedrin. right? Rome ruled over Israel. They had no ultimate authority, but, even, but within the nation of Israel itself, they had the Sanhedrin. Whatever these guys say goes. So the leaders gather this council and voice their dilemma. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They're afraid of a coup. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Then verse 53, So from that day on they made plans to put Jesus to death. We see both unbelief and pride. We see the unbelief in that these, liter- these, these, these leaders don't question what the eyewitnesses report Jesus doing to Lazarus. The, li- the religious leaders themselves even acknowledge that Jesus is performing many signs, but they refuse to believe their significance. Jesus has told them throughout his ministry why his works, why his signs are so significant. These signs were given to Jesus by his Father to glorify Jesus, to show everybody how wonderful Jesus is, and to show everybody Jesus' true identity. He was God's Son. He was even performing very specific signs as well. Signs that made sense with how God had revealed himself all along to Israel in the Old Testament. So, for example, God promised to send Israel a Messiah. And when he came, the earth would flow with wine. The temple would be restored The lame would leap like the deer. The blind would see. And even the dead nation of Israel would rise to life as God spoke life over their dry bones. And now Jesus comes in and what is he doing? Changing the water into wine. Chapter 2. Cleansing the temple. Chapter 2 again. Healing a lame man. Chapter 5. Opening the eyes of the blind, chapter 9, and raising the dead to life with a word, chapter 11. The religious leaders look at these signs, despite them having the Old Testament, they look at these signs and they turn away from Jesus. They see his miracles, but they reject his mission. I asked my son last night when we were reading this text together as a family. Luke, what did the Pharisees miss when they saw Jesus' signs? They missed Him, he answered. He's exactly right. They missed Him. Unbelief. And underlying the unbelief is pride. 
pride in maintaining their image and their institution apart from treasuring the glory of God. Right? What is our place? Our place is the temple. The temple was instituted in Israel so that the nation was fixed on the glory of God dwelling in their midst. Not so that the nation became fixed on the temple building. The nation of Israel itself was created to reflect God's glory in the earth. To be a city set on a hill reflecting the glory of God's truth and justice and mercy for the nations. Not to be a people who turn inward and self-focused and self-preserving. But that's exactly what we find is going on with these Jews. They're overwhelmed with concern for their place and their nation under Roman power. Their passion to maintain their place and their nation out of fear of losing them both to Rome blinded them to God's glory now revealed in Jesus. They were so consumed with maintaining their own glory that they couldn't see Jesus' glory. They saw signs, they missed His glory. Pride is that desire to maintain our own glory over treasuring God's glory. And this led them to reject their own Messiah who revealed Himself so clearly to them. We see unbelief and pride and both of these led to Jesus' death. But before we move on, let me ask you a question. How might we be maintaining the institution, so to speak? How might we be maintaining our image and missing the glory of Jesus? Are there ways the same unbelief and pride we see in the Jews is present in us? Have you ever been in a corporate worship setting? Like this one, or a members meeting, or a care group gathering, maybe a one-on-one discussion, conversation with somebody. And, and you notice, based on what you know of the Bible, you notice there's just something wrong about this. Something not right here. Or maybe you've recognized that this or that just doesn't seem to square with God's Word. Or maybe you've seen how somebody's handling themselves and you say to yourself, how I just saw her handle herself with her sister, it just doesn't line up with the humble attitudes that should be present in the church. And then, despite all that you are seeing and hearing, you say nothing. You do nothing out of fear of what might happen. What would the members meeting turn into if I voiced this question from the Bible? What if I just get everybody worked up over the truth? What if more people leave because of my question or concern? What will other people think of me if I ask the question to begin with? 
Let me be very clear with you. We are not gathered merely to maintain the image or the institution of Redeemer Church, especially whenever that institution and that image are not fixing others on God's glory in Christ. We are in every setting gathered to behold the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And we will not become a people who smooth things over or keep quiet when the glory of Jesus Christ is at stake, corporately or individually, in our marriages or in our parenting, in our care group settings or in our corporate worship and members' meetings in our service to the world, or in our preaching. Everything about us must be fixed on Jesus' glory, or we will eventually fall into the same deception that hardened the Pharisees' hearts and put the Savior of the world on the cross. We cannot turn in on ourselves either, priding ourselves on who we are as Baptist or Reformed or whatever. Being Baptist and being Reformed might represent the conclusions we reach when we read the Bible, but they are not the goal. Sound doctrine brings glory to God, but it does not replace God. Sunday morning is not a Reformed Baptist pep rally. We meet for Christ's sake and His glory. Are you more interested in inviting people to become part of a movement you agree with or to a person who is mighty to save? What in your life are you trying to maintain apart from treasuring God's glory in Christ? Is it your personal image? Is it the image of this church? Are we just trying to keep the lights on, maintain the status quo, content ourselves with the people we already have instead of spreading Jesus' glory to more and more and more? What is your perspective and is it plagued with the same pride that, the, that crucified the Lord of glory? Pride and self-preservation are ugly because they want the Lord of glory dead. If that pride is present in us, then we must turn and ask God for forgiveness and look to Jesus again and behold Him in His infinite worth and grace and ask God often to center you and to center this church more and more on His magnificent glory and grace. Lest we overlook Him like these religious leaders and condemn ourselves in the process. We do not exist merely to maintain the institution. We exist even as an institution to treasure the glory and worth of God and Jesus because in Him is life. Number two, Jesus' death is also ordained by God. Jesus' death is also ordained by God. This is a death that we just saw is the result of Jewish unbelief and pride. And yet, it is also ordained by God. Look at verses 49 to 50 again in light of verse 51. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. 
He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Do you hear what's going on in those sentences? There's an evil man who has a straightforward political strategy, and it goes something like this. Let's bump Jesus off and save ourselves from Roman power. Caiaphas isn't concerned with upholding justice or giving Jesus a fair trial. He's more concerned with political expediency. And then God gives us the interpretation of what's going on. In verse 51, Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord, but he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. So two things are happening simultaneously. Caiaphas is speaking sinful words, and God is in some sense standing behind Caiaphas' words. Caiaphas is giving his measured judgment to knock off Jesus, and God is revealing his plan in Caiaphas's judgment. Caiaphas is speaking and God is speaking, even though they mean different things in the same words. So not even the evil intent of the highest authority in Israel escapes God's sovereign control and power. God ordains Caiaphas's sinful actions against Jesus and Caiaphas is totally oblivious. That doesn't mean that God himself is sinful by ordaining Caiaphas to speak this way. James 1.13 says, God cannot be tempted with evil. So in some sense, God is able to ordain evil without himself being sinful. The situation also doesn't mean that Caiaphas is relieved of his responsibility for his sinful actions. The Bible clearly portrays the plots of the Jews as sinful acts against God's holy servant, Jesus. So in some sense, God is able to ordain evil through human acts and not be blamed for them himself. Those who commit the evil are still responsible for their actions. Let me just say, I'm not solving mysteries here. I'm naming them as far as the Bible goes. Now I'm punting. Some things remain hidden in God that we will never know. But this much is clear and this much is written for our salvation. Caiaphas' intent and words against Jesus are evil and God reveals that he's still in control. In so many ways, we could put the theology of Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, over these verses. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. This is how the apostles preached the cross throughout the book of Acts. Just give me a, give, let me give you a couple of examples. The very first sermon of Peter's in Acts chapter 2, he says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, this Jesus delivered up according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. 
predetermined plan, hands of lawless men. Or when the apostles are praying together in Acts chapter 4, verse 28, we get this. Sovereign Lord, truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The point is this, Jesus is heading to the cross not because evil is winning, but because he's fulfilling the sovereign plan of his Father. The eternal Son of God is not going to the cross because the world is spinning out of control, but because this is his Father's world and all things happen according to his will. Jesus doesn't go to the cross merely as a victim of unbelief and pride, but as a son who is accomplishing the will of his father. Caiaphas isn't the one who's ultimately leading him to the cross. Jesus' father is leading Jesus to the cross, even at the hands of sinful men. And here's why that's so crucial for you to get this morning. You must see Jesus' death first and foremost as an act of God. You must, if you are a Christian, you must see Jesus' death first and foremost as an act of God. It's what makes the good news good. It's not enough to know the horrific physical sufferings Jesus endured at the hands of sinful men. The cross is God's doing for the sake of sinful man. The good news begins in the heart of God the Father Himself, who is one with His Son for all eternity. It is God who loved the sinful and broken world. It is God who made the plan to save it through His Son. It is God who actually gave up His Son. It is God who led His Son to die on the cross for sinners. And it is God who raised Him from the dead three days later. Isaiah 53.10 says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Ask your unbelieving friends if they know that the cross they sometimes wear around their necks was designed by God to save the world. Ask them. Why do you wear that cross? Are you a Christian? What do you think the cross is? You will find that even many who profess to be Christians will not take you beyond the physical sufferings Jesus endured as a man. In their eyes, Jesus is merely a good example and not a savior. They know that he suffered a lot as a man, but they don't know what for. Their theology of the cross has more in common with Hollywood's portrayal of the crucifixion than the Bible's testimony of what God is actually doing in the event of the cross. God is acting in Christ to save us from our sins. The cross is not meant 
to just make us feel sorry for an innocent man. It reveals the love and power of God saving sinners. Fill in the blanks, parents, for your children when you read them Christian books that give lots of attention to Jesus' sufferings and very little attention to God ordaining it for our good. And here's something else to remember. God is controlling everything even as Jesus heads to the utter darkness of death. God is controlling everything even as Jesus heads to the utter darkness of death. That means the cross should be for you a continual reminder of God's love and mercy to save you, even in the midst of darkness. Do you want a constant testimony of God's love on days when all the difficulties and all the trials and all the pains and all the dark temptations from the evil one threaten your soul? And often tempt you to think otherwise about whether God is loving? Do you want a testimony of God's love? The cross is heaven's loudest shout that God loves sinners in the midst of darkness. So much so that he was willing to give up his eternally precious son to to a cross that he designed for your eternal good and his glory. Do you want a never-failing testimony that God is in control even when the darkness consumes you and overwhelms your soul? Then keep looking to Jesus' cross. Don't take your eyes off the cross. Talk about it and counsel each other with it more. Even the darkest moment in history when the infinitely beautiful Son was betrayed and crucified, it was not outside of God's control. Jesus entered that darkness as planned, willingly embracing the betrayal and suffering and forsakenness and even death itself so that you might ultimately live. If he entered the darkness of death and won by rising from the dead three days later, then you have a continual reminder to endure in the face of darkness in this life. In fact, we're coming up on a couple of places in John where Jesus tells his disciples straight up, I told you what was going to happen to me before it happened so that when it happened, your faith would not fail. So that when it happened, you would believe. God's control over the evil surrounding the cross is meant to comfort us and it's meant to give us more faith in the midst of darkness. Number three. Jesus' death is a substitutionary death. Jesus' death is a substitutionary death. Look again at verse 50. Nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people. Note that. Not that the whole nation should perish He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Note that. Not for the nation only, but also, note that, to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. 
This language, for the people, for the nation, means that Jesus died in place of or instead of somebody else. We use this language too, right? If you serve as a substitute teacher, you might say to someone else, I'm teaching for him today. You don't simply mean that you're teaching for his advantage. But even more, you're teaching in his place. The same here, but with death on the line, eternal death on the line. Jesus dies for us, meaning in our place. Caiaphas, of course, only means this in a very worldly sense. That is, Jesus should die instead of our nation perishing under Rome. But remember, there's more bound up with his words that he doesn't even realize. God means that Jesus will die not just to help his children temporarily escape the political threat of Rome. God's love is infinitely greater than that. God means that Jesus will die to help his children eternally escape the horrific threat of his wrath. The problem we have as sinners is that God's wrath stands over us. God's wrath is his just response to our sins against him. Our sin offends the holy God and merits eternal punishment. The Bible even refers to this eternal punishment as death or perishing. So, for example, in chapter 3, verse 36, not entering into life, also known as death, not entering into life is equivalent to sitting under God's wrath, to having God's wrath remain on you. Or in chapter 5, verse 24, death is portrayed as coming into judgment, the judgment of God under His wrath. Or in chapter 8, dying in your sins is another way for Jesus to say that dying guilty under God's wrath with no escape. And then in Revelation 21.8, another book John wrote, eternal punishment is referred to as the second death. The only solution to this problem of death that we all have under God's wrath is the right substitute. The Old Testament prepares us for this, right? Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, what do we learn? The people were unclean, like us. They had broken God's commandments. They were transgressors of God's law. They were all sinful and they were all guilty before God. And something had to die in the place of God's people in order for their sin and their guilt to be removed and in order order for God's wrath to turn away from them. So the priests would offer a bull or a goat in place of the people. And all the people's sins would go on that sacrifice. And God, it would serve as an atonement, and God would turn away His wrath from them. What was lacking in these sacrifices, however, is that the blood of bulls and goats could never actually take away sins. This is what the writer of Hebrews tells us. Chapter 10, verse 4. These sacrifices that were performed throughout the history of Israel always pointed to a day when God would take away sins and turn His wrath away from His people through a superior substitute. In fact, Isaiah 53 was even reminding the people to look to that substitute. Suffering servant himself. 
And we get to the New Testament, Jesus is identified as that superior substitute. As God's Son, He became a man like us, but without sin. He was the unblemished sacrifice. And as a man who was also God, He could endure God's wrath to its full. So, through His death on the cross, God not only takes away our sins... But he pours out his wrath on Jesus in place of us. He took our sins on his back. Men, many of you just returned from a retreat where I'm certain God used his word to expose your many sins in very specific ways. Jesus took that lust. Jesus took that idolatry. Jesus took that covetousness and that adultery and that shame, He took it on His back, carried it all to the cross, and then stood condemned under God's wrath in your place. He drained the cup of God's wrath so that there's none left for you when you meet God. That's good news. When Jesus died on the cross, He died under God's wrath as your substitution, meaning there's nothing left for you to pay, nothing left for you to do in order to win God's favor, nothing left for you to accomplish, only everything for you to gain when you receive Him by faith. Jesus paid it all. God Himself offered up Jesus as a full and sufficient sacrifice, satisfying all the unpaid debts of your sinful behavior. Debts you could never hope to pay. And debts you would have, that would have left you separated from God forever. He paid for them all when He stood in your place under God's wrath. If you belong to Christ, if you are clinging to Him as your only hope this morning, then you have the ultimate protection in the universe. You don't have to live your life in fear like these religious leaders were living running around scared of Rome, worried about what people might do to them. Your protection in Christ from the greatest threat in the universe, God's wrath, was sealed when He stood in your place. You don't get any better protection than protection from the wrath of God through the substitutionary death of Jesus As Paul says it in Romans, if God is for you, then who can be against you? This holy God, who is angry with you you and your sins, all of it spent on Jesus, who stood in your place. If that God is for you because of Jesus' death, who can be against you? Let this be your song throughout all your days, filling you, filling your heart with Good things to tell others. Let it shape the way you overcome, say, anger. If God showed you such mercy by sending Jesus to remove His anger from you, what kind of mercy ought you to show to others? What kind of patience ought you show to others? If God has spent His wrath on Jesus for all His people, think about it as a body. If God has spent His wrath on all of His 
on, on Jesus for all of His people, then why would you ever get angry with one another and let the sun go down on your anger with one another, like Ephesians 4 says, giving an opportunity for the devil. God's taking care of His anger. We can leave these things in His hands. Let Christ's substitutionary death shape your marriage. Husbands, we get this in Ephesians 5. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Look at the extent Jesus was willing to go for you, husbands, and then imitate His love. Imitate His desire to protect His bride with His life. That goes for working to provide for the home, serving her needs, fighting for her joy, everything. Let it also inform how you witness to others. If Jesus' blood can make the foulest of of sinners clean, like you sang earlier, we have lots of good news to tell to everybody we encounter. Whether it's the self-righteous hypocrite Or it's the prostitute who could give a rip about the truth. His blood can make the foulest of sinners clean and turn God's wrath away from them too. I think you get the picture. And for those of you who don't belong to Jesus, will you please believe in Jesus as your substitute? If you reject Him, you will perish I'm talking to everybody in this room, including the children. Children, Romans 1.30 says that you deserve God's punishment for your disobedience to your mommy and your daddy. You need to trust that Jesus came to be punished by God so that you don't have to be punished forever but instead can enjoy a relationship with God Himself by faith. Number four, Jesus' death is an effectual death. Jesus' death is an effectual death. That means Jesus' death did not merely secure possibilities, but secured a people for God. His death did not merely make it possible for people to be saved. His death actually saved people. His death was effectual in that it had the power to produce all God designed and intended it to produce, namely the gathering of God's children from every people and nation into one. Look again at verses 50 and 52. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also, here it is, to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's Jew and Gentile alike who are elect by God the Father and redeemed by the blood of Jesus. 
God's children are those who are born of God in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. These children are those the Father gives to His Son. They are the sheep in chapter 10. Jesus died to gather these children of God who are scattered abroad. You've got to love the irony of these verses, right? What are the, what are the religious leaders trying to prevent? Watch out for Rome. I mean, everybody's going after Jesus and believing in Him. We don't want this to happen. So they put Him on the cross, and what happens? It's the very thing that God had designed to gather all the children. (laughs) I love it. The kind of death Jesus dies is a death intended to gather God's elect children from all over the world. Now, let me be clear about something. The gathering of God's elect children from all over the world does not happen in the moment of Jesus' death. I'm talking AD 33. doesn't happen there. But everything needed to ensure they are gathered happens in the moment of Jesus' death. That includes things like the inauguration of the new covenant, the work of the Holy Spirit in the church under that new covenant, the actual forgiveness of sins that we offer people through Jesus, through the preaching of the cross, and the promise of future glory for everybody who would trust in this Jesus whom God also raised from the dead. All of those were secured at the cross and sealed, guaranteed with His resurrection. And we have to admit that the book of Acts in our Bible proves that Jesus' words are accurate. What happens in the book of Acts? The cross, we see that the cross really did secure everything needed to gather in the Father's scattered children. As the cross is lifted up in the preaching of the gospel, what's happening? Jew and Gentile alike are welcomed into God's kingdom through repentance and faith. God accomplished in Jesus' death everything He set out to do, and now, having raised Jesus from the dead, having sent the Holy Spirit into the world to bear witness to the cross, He's saving men and women, boys and girls, from every tribe and nation and people. So one thing we should take home with us from this last point is this. Are you truly treasuring the kind of death Jesus died? Are you truly treasuring the kind of death Jesus died? This is the second time. We're going to get it again. In chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. And these are the sheep he's talking about that he gave his life for. Then we get it here. And then in chapter 12, verse 32, he says, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself, Jew and Gentile alike, right? He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Are you treasuring the kind of death Jesus died? Meaning, he didn't die to gather just you. He died to gather all of His Father's scattered children from every people and tribe and tongue and nation. 
He died to gather all of them, not just some of them. Do you believe this? Are you treasuring this about the one you call Lord? I think the fact that nobody from this church showed up to help Dan with the Easter outreach is evidence that we do not truly treasure Jesus' death this way. I know some of you were doing God-glorifying things at that time. Not saying this in a sweeping manner across... Some of you had newborns. Some of you were doing God-glorifying things... But are you telling me that out of 170, 180 people on a weekend, you were likely more free from work responsibilities? No one was able to show up? After a month of preparation and planning and e-news announcements, several email reminders and another reminder the week prior in Dan's sermon... And of all the Saturdays Dan has asked for help in evangelizing the White Settlement area, we've had three brothers respond. I hope that's because we're busy serving and getting the good news to others in our own neighborhoods and not just killing time watching baseball and playing video games. I even exhorted you a while back to make efforts in your care groups to reach the lost in the neighborhoods that God has you now living. That was January 12th. How many people in your neighborhoods have you made it a point to meet and share the gospel with since January 12th? I'm talking about the people you see every day, going to your mailbox, picking up the paper, driving to work, whatever. Do you really treasure Jesus' death for what the Bible itself reveals it to be? A death designed by God to gather all God's scattered children. If so, then let us preach with all the might that God mightily inspires within us. And let us pray for God to bring those scattered children into His kingdom through our witness and our sacrificial service to others. Make it your prayer every day for God to bring you into contact with someone who's willing to hear the gospel and to give you boldness. That's imitating Christ who took the initiative in coming to us. Ask Him to give you boldness to take the same initiative to go to them with the gospel. You will be surprised at how often He will answer your requests. So pray this way and expect God to use you. Far be it from us that we're too busy to make disciples. If we're too busy to invest in the lives of others to see them come to Christ, then there's time for some serious self-evaluation and repentance. Read the e-news where various opportunities for, for outreach are mentioned from time to time. Start a backyard Bible club in your neighborhood. We'll buy everything for you. Dan and Wes have even been talking about what it would be like to have VBS this summer for this area. Find a place during the week where people gather and visit. Visit there frequently with the intent to engage people with the gospel. I go to Starbucks every Thursday. 
for about four hours and make it a point. Meet somebody, share the gospel. Find somewhere regularly to meet people and engage them with the truth of Christ. I also got one of the most encouraging phone calls this week from John Sego. He used to be a member here, now living in Austin. He's preached a couple of times on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. He was telling me about how God had used the Together for the Gospel conference we went to together a couple of weeks ago. How God had used it to, to, and made him burdened for the lost around him. Especially these, this couple that lives next door to them. John and Brandy have also been in the process of looking for another home in Austin. And it would take them away from that couple and seeing them and interacting with them regularly across the other side of town. So John calls me and he says that he's been so burdened to see this one couple in particular to come to Christ that he's now questioning whether it's right for him to move. Staying in their rent home longer in order to be a light to this couple was a good reason for them to reconsider their priorities and how quickly to move from one part of town to another. That's what I'm talking about. When has reaching the lost with the good news of Jesus' death affected your buying decisions? Affected your living arrangements affected your education pursuits. And I'm talking about how many hours you take every semester. How has it affected the way you view the workplace? If we're treasuring Jesus' death rightly, then we will live for His mission to gather the scattered children. And if his death already procured all that's necessary to gather God's children, then we can have absolute confidence that our lives will not be wasted when we go to find them. Even if they're not found under your ministry, is the Gospel Word being planted in people that they might come to the Lord. I can't wait to see them all gathered right before the throne. All tribes, tongues, peoples, nations, dressed in their blood-bought garments of praise, singing the songs of the Lamb, reflecting His love and beauty forever, only to increase our own joy in Christ forever. That day couldn't come soon enough. But until then, fix yourself on Jesus' glory. Trust God's sovereign plan. Embrace and preach His substitutionary death to others and square your passion in life with that of Jesus Himself to gather all God's scattered children. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would awaken us 
from our slumber and open our eyes to your word and its truth and to our wonderful Savior who has saved so many of us and has saved so many multitudes who have yet to hear. Make us vigilant in our preaching of the cross that they too might join us in the joys that we know as salvation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.